So uh, my wife really loves talking in front of people, and that was the first time I've ever asked her to do that. So I, I just want to... She, she hates even more that I just did that. Um, that's, it's fine because I think it's funny and it made her laugh, so uh, that'll work. Hey, we've got a couple more weeks left in Revelation, and I hope, I hope you've been reading through the text as we've been going, going through it. And uh, this morning, last week, we kind of ch- took care of a big chunk of Revelation, basically chapters 6 through 16, but I told you we were going to not talk about 10 through 14. Well, this morning we're going to do that. So we've kind of gone over here, and now we're coming back over here. But it's totally okay because the letter of Revelation is not chronological. It's not about a timeline or sequence of events. It's about a divine perspective of hope and encouragement that John writes to the Christians who are living in the time of the Roman Empire and the oppression and persecution that came along with that. And we've been kind of talking about how there actually are some similarities. There's some really important things that we need to learn and understand as we both live out our faith in our current context and look forward to Jesus' second coming again. So we're going to be in Roman in Romans. <laughs> uh, might as well. Yeah, Romans too. Uh, Revelation chapters 10 through 14, if you want to open up the text and, uh, and check that out. Sometimes... As you read through scripture, uh, there are either chapters or sections of chapters um, because the authors did not write in that way. Like, I don't know if you know that, but those numbers, the, the chapters and the verses that we look at, uh, when John wrote his letter, he didn't write in, oh, here's chapters 10 through 14. He just wrote the letter. And we use that just to kind of make it a little bit easier for us to point out references or look back at, at things like that. So when he writes this, and a lot of times in, in scripture, um, sometimes it's whole books, sometimes it's, it's sections uh, that we look at. There's a particular structure in which the, the middle is the most important part. In Revelation, uh, the way that John writes it doesn't strictly follow this structure. However, chapters 10 through 14, kind of right there in the middle of the letter, um, have, have another just, it's almost kind of like an interlude where there's, there's an explanation of how things work, the cycle of humanity. And we talked about that last week, how there's three different perspectives that we are given uh, through the seven, uh, seven seals and the seven trumpets and the seven bowls. Well, there's a whole other perspective in chapters 10 through 14, but this time instead of from our point of view, this is more from a divine point of view. Okay, so we're checking out a divine uh, perspective. It's kind of a reminder of the ongoing struggle and tension we feel in a world that has glimpses of how things should be, but a whole lot of reminders of how they they shouldn't be. Um, I, I, every year, I I try to watch the World Series, even if the Nationals aren't in it, which is most every year, although there was that year in 2019, and that was pretty great. And I did watch, uh, not as much as I would have liked to, but I did watch a lot of the World Series uh, this past uh, season two that just ended up, right, that just ended last week, right? What, what year is this again? I don't know. What month are we in? I think it just ended last week, and I really enjoyed that one mainly because the Astros weren't in it, and the Phillies got beat too, and, and so I thought that was, I thought that was amazing. So uh, Texas Rangers beat, spoiler alert, uh, the Arizona Diamondbacks, and one of the things that I always find fascinating, spe- specifically with the World Series, is it seems like a lot of times in baseball, the, the team that loses always kind of hangs out in the dugout and watches the team that wins celebrate. Um, and I think that's interesting, and there, there might be a couple of reasons why that is, but in my mind, I'm kind of picturing, like, me personally, if I had just lost the World Series, I'd, I'd want to be gone. Like, I wouldn't even want to take a shower, you know, like, hit the locker room, get my stuff, gone, I don't want to watch this. 
But I think a reason why a lot of baseball players do that, and maybe I'm, I, I, don't, I don't know, I haven't asked them, uh, is because they're visualizing what they want to be doing the next season. They're looking, like, this was the goal, this is what we wanted to achieve, this is what it's going to feel like, and we're not out there celebrating, but man, I'm going to do everything I can to be the person who's out there celebrating by the end of next season. And I think, I think that's, why, that's why they do that. For some, you know, some of us would look at that and we would say, we missed our opportunity. It's devastating. We'll never be able to get to this point again. Um, I, think, I think there's a certain attitude when you're competitive, when you know the goal and you want to do what you can to reach it. Um, you want to see that because you want to visualize what you want to come about in your life. And by the time we move from Revelation to chapter 10, to Revelation chapter 14, we find the same type of picture. Um, the end is talked about and illustrated um, a lot in Revelation. It doesn't just happen in the end of the letter. There's a lot of times where all things being brought together to a conclusion is talked about a lot of different things, a lot of different times. And this happens in Revelation chapter 10 through chapter 14 as well. And we find the same type of picture. We know what the goal is in the end, Maybe. Hopefully we know what the goal is in the end. Uh, we have ample opportunity and reminders of what needs to happen to get there, but whether or not we choose to prepare for the win or not, there is an end coming in which there is not another season to come. This is why, also why the hope and encouragement of John's letter isn't just about hanging on until the end and God making everything new. So we're not just kind of sitting around, punched our ticket to heaven, and we're good, and we just kind of wait and deal with it as we go, although that can be part of it. But also, it's about who we are and what we do in the meantime, because we are called to prepare for the outcome that God wants for us. So hopefully in Revelation chapter 10, and we're going to start reading in verse 5, it begins with an overwhelming view of a mighty angel coming down from heaven. And here's what John experiences. And then the angel I had, been, I had seen standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven. And he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and all that is in them, the earth and all that is in it, and the sea and all that is in it, and said, There will be no more delay. But in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished just as he announced to his servants the prophets. There is an incoming, and this kind of sets the context for what we're about to read as we go. Uh, and um, anyway, there, but there's also a preparation for our anticipation of Jesus' return. He continues on in verse 8. Then the voice that I'd heard from heaven spoke to me once more, go. Take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. Then I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. Now, we're about halfway through John's vision, right, through his letter. And, and I can just only imagine that John at this point is just exhausted. I mean, all the things that he's seeing, all the things that are happening here, and he's trying to write these things down. And, uh, but, but I think, I think, I really do, um, that this is a little bit more than just a little snack break. I mean, sometimes, like, you're, you're not you when you're hangry, right? So sometimes you just need a Snickers. Um, and I think some of y'all just don't know what a Snickers can do in your life. I can tell by your reaction. Um, that, that can be life-giving. And, and so some of y'all, maybe, maybe you need a Snickers this morning. I, I don't know. Um, 
But John has seen a lot at this point, and he needs something to sustain him and to keep us going. And some of us can relate to that. We understand we live in the tension of this world, and we recognize that sometimes we, we need something to keep us going that we can't produce ourselves. And so here's this little scroll. It tastes sweet but sours the stomach. And this, this little scroll is symbolizing the Word of God. That, that's what this means. That's the symbol that John is giving here. This is the imagery. There's a clue to this in verse 11, but this also isn't the first time that someone with the task of sharing the message of God eats a scroll. So this happens elsewhere in Scripture too. So Ezekiel chapter 3, for example, verse 3, God is talking to Ezekiel, and he says, Son of man, eat this scroll I'm giving you and fill your stomach with it. So I ate it, and it tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth. He then said to me, Son of man, go now to the people of Israel and speak my words to them. All right, so here's the symbol, here's this imagery that we're starting off <clears throat> Revelation 10 through 14 with, and it starts off with the message of God. Now, by the time we get to, to John, we're calling this, this message something a little bit more specific. We're calling it the gospel, the good news. And so when John eats this, when he ingests this, he said, man, this, this is sweet as honey. This is this tastes amazing. But why, why does it all of a sudden turn sour in his stomach? Well, the message of the gospel, the word became flesh, who is Jesus, is good news of hope and redemption and resurrection and everything being made right, and that God at some point in the future is going to make everything new. But it's also a message that isn't accepted by all of us at every point. Some of us remember um, the first time we ever heard the gospel, and maybe we didn't accept it initially when we heard it. It, it makes things appear to be more difficult uh, when we go against the flow of the world around us. It requires repentance and life change. And for people who recognize their need for a Savior, the Word of God is sweet. For those who do not, the Word of God is condemnation, and therefore it leaves uh, a sour feeling in the pit of our stomach. I, I don't know if you've ever tried this before, but if you've ever gone up to somebody who doesn't believe the same thing that you do about who Jesus is and why the message of Jesus coming is good news and told them, well, you're a sinner going to hell, you need to repent. Like, it probably hasn't gone over very well. There's a reason for that because that's probably not the best methodology. Um, so I'd encourage you to approach that a little bit differently. Maybe, maybe start off being kind and loving and, and uh, living out the way that Jesus has called you to. Um, but there's something that John is being called here to, the same thing that Ezekiel was being called to, and all the prophets throughout the Old Testament, and the message that we have been given, the responsibility that we have been given by God through Jesus to share the message of the, of the good news is that it, it doesn't always go the way that we would like to. For us, we know how hopeful it is, the love and grace and mercy of God, but there's also the justice and righteousness and holiness and glory of God that is tied to that. And, and sometimes when there's a disconnect between our understanding of what that is, it leaves us with a sour feeling in the pit of our stomach. But we're all called to share this message. Um, in How to Dodge a Dragon, which is about the book of, it's kind of like a devotional uh, about the book of Revelation, uh, Mark Moore points this out. And this is going to be really important uh, because this has a lot to do with what's coming in the, in the next chapters. He says, preaching is a very dangerous thing. If all goes as planned, we snatch captives from the enemy's hand. We release prisoners. We give sight to the blind, hope to the lost, victory to the downtrodden. If, however, our message is rejected, we are prophetic harbingers of doom. We introduce hostile men to a holy God with fire in his eyes and power to punish. We become the world's worst kind of enemy by announcing the truth of God. That is precisely why preaching is such a dangerous thing. 
And I know what some of you are thinking. You're like, oh, good luck with that, buddy. <laughs> sounds, sounds tough. That's your job. Um, actually, though, uh, that's, that's what we're all called to. I mean, different responsibilities, different roles, right? And, and I get this different, different talented and giftedness, but we're all called to share the message of the gospel, um, to, to not just keep it to ourselves, but, but to tell others about salvation and what this looks like. And the next few chapters are going to describe the danger and where it's coming from. And, and as, as much as the physical empire we find ourselves in vies for our, our attention, there's a spiritual conflict that is being waged in the world because the enemy wants to sour the good news of God with a different type of gospel. In Revelation chapter 11, we're introduced to a big picture of what this looks like in the form of two witnesses who preach the good news. So in Revelation chapter 11, verse 1, I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altars with his worshipers. But exclude the outer court, do not measure it, because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months, and I will appoint my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. We get uh, hung up a lot of times on the numbers and thinking, oh, 42 months is, oh, 42 months, we need to count that out, or 1,260 days, we need to count that out. That's not the point of these numbers, and these numbers show up again. Uh, it's symbolism. So it's a period of time that at some point will end, okay? Um, and I will point my two witnesses, and they will prophesy clothed in sackcloth. They are the two olive trees and the two lampstands, and they stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. They have power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. And they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Here is another description of the end of all things. Uh, again, remember the end is referred to multiple times as we read through the letter. And skipping down to verse 15, there's a, another description of the death and resurrection of the witnesses as they are called it by God. In verse 15, the seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were, again, seven is completion, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. Like we've talked about before, Revelation is not all about future events. In fact, this description that we're given is about what has happened before. Um, it, actually, an easy way to think about Revelation, um, Revelation 11 and 12, the difference, before, uh, difference between the two is kind of Old Testament and New Testament. So you start reading the description of these two prophets. Well, who were the two prophets that everybody pointed to that were kind of at the top of their game in the history of the nation of Israel? Moses and Elijah. Well, what happened with Moses and Elijah? You start reading the description again. Well, who, um, who, who had fire-consuming sacrifices when they were at the top of the mountain with God on Mount Carmel? That, that was Elijah. Like, that happened with... Who, who, like, had the whole blood turning into water and plagues happening as they were prophesying and preaching the message of God? Well, well this was Moses. This is representative of God's message, prophetic message, that he's been giving, been giving from the beginning through his people that he set apart. There's that image of John measuring the temple and excluding the outer courts, right? So, so John is describing, hey, this is how the message of God, this little scroll that is sweet to the mouth but <laughs> can sour the stomach but based on how we respond to the message, this is how it's been shared from the beginning. God's been sharing it through his people, through his prophets, and the world has rejected this. This is what he's calling us to, but the world has rejected this. And yet, in the end, God's message still prevails 
this is the message. By the time we've gotten to Jesus, there's been 400 years of silence. It seems like God's message of hope and of repentance has, and redemption has been killed off. However, we see Moses and Elijah again. You turn to Matthew chapter 17, and we're not going to read it this morning, but I would encourage you to do that. Matthew chapter 17, Jesus and Moses and Elijah actually interact with each other. We call this the transfiguration of Jesus. And Moses and Elijah show up with Jesus. They're there. This is where Peter's like, hey, I can build you a tent, and that would be cool. And Jesus is like, oh, Peter. <laughs> um, and then Moses and Elijah are, are called back up, up, to, up to God. This is after Jesus, this all happens in Matthew 17, after Jesus confirms that he's the Messiah, um, confirms that he is the result of the prophet, prophetic message of God that's been carried throughout the centuries and that he will be sacrificed, the culmination of the prophetic message of the Old Testament. John is describing that there's a spiritual battle being waged, and our part in the fight is to be a witness of the good news of Jesus and his kingdom. This same call that John has been given to eat the scroll, to share with the nations the gospel of God, is the same call we are called in as well. Sometimes it seems like the enemy has won or is winning, but it is not ever a victory, nor will it be for any except for God. This is hope and encouragement for those who revere God, destruction for those that destroy what God has created. And, and this is what we do when we do not follow the message of God, when we allow and hold on to sin and allow the power of death to pervade in our lives. The kingdom that is established through Jesus has always been prophesied about, and it's always been coming. In Revelation chapter 12, um, read through most of that chapter on your own, we find a description of the Satan trying to thwart God's plan through his people to establish salvation through Jesus. Again, it's a spiritual battle that is no less real in this world. It spills over into the world, and the enemy will not win on the heavenly plane, so he moves to the earthly. Revelation 12 is how we get to the end in Revelation 11, chapter 15. Uh, again, I said about this earlier, the simplest way to think about this is the transition from the Old Testament to the New Testament, the Old Covenant to the New Co Covenant. Revelation chapter 12, just to kind of give us an example, in verse 17, the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. Again, the symbolism and imagery is just talking about this is what we experience. This is what we're up against. This dragon that's described, this is Satan. This is, this is what the Satan does. In Revelation chapter 13, uh, there, there's this, um, this beast, you know, that comes out of the sea. Well, this is talking about the Roman Empire because that's the direction the Romans came from. John is writing in Ephesus. and You remember the map that we looked at a few weeks ago with the seven churches and, and the area that, that they're in. Like, this is where the beast is coming from. All the heads, all the horns, all of that is imagery and always is in the Bible about kingdoms and nations and rulers and emperors. One of them's got this wound on his head and has this miraculous healing, that kind of thing. It happened to Vespasian, who was an emperor of the Roman Empire. He had this crazy wound in a battle and somehow miraculously was, was healed, right, is, is, is the tale that was told at that time. There's a second beast. There's two witnesses. There's two beasts. You know, there's this cosmic battle, this spiritual war that's going on, this tension that's being pulled back and forth that are working in conjunction with empire, greed, power, one from the sea, again, this Rome, one from the land, all the cities that are there that are supporting Rome, that are participating in the imperial cult, they're lifting up idols and gods and all the cities that participate and interact with and pr prop up the empire. 
Um, Revelation chapter 13, verse 4, people worship the dragon because he had given authority to the beast, and they also worship the beast and asked, who is like the beast? Who can wage war against us, against it? And so what John is describing is the temptation that we all have and that we're all presented with, and that is to value the temporary kingdoms of this world over the kingdom of God. We all feel this tension in this poll. Because the culture that we live in, the society that we grow up in, you know, it's normal to us. That's, that's how things should be. But the one that's presented to us in Scripture, the, the kingdom of, of God through Jesus is completely different. The enemy is calling us and presenting a different gospel than the one that we're called to respond and share. Um, some of you may remember this from, from a long time ago where we've talked about this before, but the term gospel, remember, was a political term, like in the, in the Roman Empire. The, the gospel would be, you know, there would be the gospel of Caesar. Like, here's the political campaign message. Like, this is, here, here's the hope and change that's coming. Or we're going to make Rome great again. Right? So, let, let's be honest, though. That's the reaction that we should have to all political campaigns, regardless of the candidate. Because we recognize that no matter what side it's coming from, Whatever representation is coming from, from the kingdoms of this world, it, it will not produce the kind of world, or the, kind of, um, the kind of culture, the kind of society, the kind of relationships that God has called, in, called us to, to share within the kingdom of God. There's only one complete answer to the problems of this world, and Jesus is the only one who can, who can provide it. And if you skip through Revelation chapter 13, you... There's, there's a number at the end that we get really excited about, the number 666. And uh, I'm not going to read from that in chapter 13, but I'm going to talk about it when we read through Revelation 14. Because Revelation 14 kind of gives us some more context from it. Revelation chapter 14, verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, and the sea, and the springs of water. A second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives its mark on their forehead or on their hands, they too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. They will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. There will be no rest day or night for those who worship the beast in its image. For anyone who receives the mark of its name, this calls for patient endurance on the part of the people of God who keep his commands and remain faithful to Jesus. So here, here's the kind of, um, you know, one of those kind of uh, fear and crazy things that that get a lot of attention with the letter of Revelation uh, and kind of take us away from the hope and encouragement that it's meant to bring. So we talk about this mark on the forehead, you know, the mark on the hand, the 666, you know, this number, it's the number of the beast, it's the number of Satan, it's the number of the dragon. Oh no, what, you know, what if I come to a point in my life where I have to decide, you know, the, these kinds of things. We talked about how the Christians um, that John was writing to had to make a decision about whether or not they engage in the agora, in the marketplace, because to do so required that you make sacrifice to the emperor, um, participate in the imperial cult, and, and sometimes you were marked, you know, to denote that, that you could um, 
uh, take part in the commerce of the of the marketplace. You know, maybe maybe it's a little bit of soot, you know, from your incense that you burn on your hand or on your forehead, whatever it might be. But here, here's what here's what this really means. We have this picture of who God is, uh, um, and we also have this picture of who the Satan is. We've got this picture of a dragon who represents the Satan. We have this picture of a beast who represents the empire. We also have the picture of, of Babylon, um, and we're going to talk about this next week more. But Babylon is representative of, of the city that supports and props up the empire. This description of an adulterous woman. Um, we have a dragon and a beast and a prostitute. Oh, my. But, w- but one of the ways I, I think that one, one scholar described it like this, and I, and I think this is fantastic. It, it, um, I think this is a great way to think about it. What we also have is an unholy trinity versus the holy trinity. We, we have this spiritual war, this conflict. We have these competing gospels, and it's just these two. I mean, I, I know, I know there's, a, there's a lot of nuance. I know there's a lot of opinions. I, I know there's a lot of things that come along with that, but it's, it's here or here, and we're getting pulled in the tension, and we have to decide which message we're going to be witnesses to, which, which message our lives are going to be a testimony of, and so by the time we come to the 666, this mark on the forehead and hands, this is not about having a, a GPS chip in your hand. Um, if you do it to your dog, I guess it's okay for you. Um, I, oh, we didn't like that one. Okay, that was offensive. My bad. Um, it's not about, you know, being able to, uh, not, not about social currency or credit cards, although those are, you know, all of those things are temptations to participate in the empires of this world. But we already carry those devices in our pocket in our hands and lift them up to our ears, like all our cell phones do all that kind of stuff, right? Um, and then sometimes it, it's, it, you know, we think, well, wait, is this the number of the Antichrist? And this is, this is how we figure this out. Remember, there are many Antichrists, not just one that we're afraid of that happens in the future. Um, that, like that's, a, again, a, a way that people mistakenly talk, talk, talk about those things. Remember um, that numbers are representative or symbols in, in letter uh, revelation. Uh, gematria is, is the, is the uh, name for that. And this is used a lot of times, not just in Revelation, but in Scripture in other ways. Um, but sometimes we, we take it a little bit too far. And so we'll take this number and we'll say, oh, 666, like if we can make somebody's name, like maybe, you know, we t- translate it into Hebrew somehow and we count the letters and all that kind of stuff. Well, that's the person who's the Antichrist. And so we need to figure out throughout history who that is. Um, I, I don't know that you even know this is a thing that people do, but I did this with my name, okay? So just, okay. Um, so the first slide, don't go too quick uh, for me, Blaine, because I don't want to make, well, anyway. So first name, I've got six letters in my first name. Um, okay. Makes me, I don't know, a little nervous. Okay. The, the last, last, my last name, uh, <laughs> I don't know if you see a pattern here, but, um, Whew, I'm getting, I don't know, I'm getting a little nervous. I don't know if I should show you what, what, the, what my middle name, how many letters are in my middle name. My middle name has, okay, all right, I'm good. I got seven letters in my middle name. Now, some of you, I don't know, maybe you need to take a piece of paper and discover whether or not you're the Antichrist this morning. Um, uh, hopefully, if you are, just let us know. Um, here's, what's, here's what's happening here, okay? Here's what's happening here. This is symbolism and imagery, the number that represents the completeness and perfection of God is seven. Well, we're one less than that. 
we're not complete. The only complete, perfect human being that ever lived, the only fully human that ever lived was Jesus. We, we fall short. And, and we fall short even more so uh, when we reject the message of God and we accept the message of the unholy trinity. Um, and that's what, this is, that's what this is representing, is that when we choose the wrong message, when we, when we allow ourselves to be pulled in the wrong direction, um, we, we, do not, um, we do not represent God's image very well. While made in God's image, it doesn't matter how glorious our achievements on this earth are, we all fall short and they are only temporary. And so the message is, don't sell your soul for the treasure of this world that will rust and moths will destroy and thieves will break in and steal. That's what John's message is here. Don't settle for the number of this world because it doesn't add up. It, it doesn't measure to the completeness of God. Instead, our foreheads... And our hands, that space should already be occupied. If we turn all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 6 and start reading verse, chapter 3, and verse 4 and 5, we find the Shema Yisrael. Um, this is a very significant passage. It's one that's repeated. It's memorized and, and acted out on in, in, in different ways. It just means Shema Yisrael, just, it's Hebrew. It means hear Israel. Hear, O Israel. Deuteronomy 6, verse 3. Um, see if you pick up um, a little bit later in these verses, in, especially in verse 8, um, how this fits in with what John is talking about. Hear, Israel, and be careful to obey so that it may go well with you and that you may increase greatly in the land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. Hear, O Israel, this is the Shema Yisrael. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door, friends, on the door frames of your houses and on your gardens. Listen, th this is not about trying to figure out what we don't allow. It's not about tattoos. You know, it, it's not about, you know, oh, there's this thing. There's this choice we're going to have to make in the future. And the choice is already being made right now. This is a choice that we're already participating in, is which message is written on our hands, the actions that we produce, the things that we're doing. What, which message is written on our foreheads? You know, what's directing our thinking, our hearts, and our minds? And, and how we approach things. That that's, that's already exists. And for some of us, when we um, come to the message of God, we, we've, got, we've got a decision. It's, it's which, which message do we portray in our life? Uh, for some of us, maybe we've never even um, been given that choice yet. You know, when, when we share the gospel, there's the choice and decision to be made. Some of us need to wash our hands and our face um, so that we create space for the message of God to be uh, lived out. You know, there's this, uh, speaking of symbolism and imagery, there's this thing that we are called to when we say yes to following Jesus. It's called baptism, you know, immersion, um, where we take part in the symbolism of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, where all of our sin, all of our unholy trinity messaging is washed away, and we participate um, in a brand new good news message of the gospel.
Um, we're really good in our culture at treating symptoms versus treating the disease. Uh, why, you know, I, I'm lonely, I'm happy, I'm unhappy, you know, anxiety or, or um, you know, my blood pressure is bad or, you know, whatever those things are. And, and so we'll, we'll do things um, to try to mitigate the symptoms, but we, we don't actually deal with the root cause of, of what the problem is. It's just kind of a thing, a thing that we like to do in our culture. Um, the message of God deals with the disease, and the disease is sin and death. And the disease is, is the enemy who's, who's trying to wage war and keep us from the message of God. And when we need sustenance, uh, when we need uh, something that, that helps us through, that gives us what we need to sustain us in the tension of this world as we're pulled in the spiritual battle, um, that sustenance is provided through God's word. That is what sustains that's, that is what sustains us. By the time we get to Revelation chapter 14, verse 13, and there's a description later for what happens when we reject the message of God and accept uh, the different gospel. Um, but this is the encouragement that we need, I think, this morning. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor, for their deeds will follow them. May we be the witnesses of the faithfulness of God's command. May we be the witnesses of the testimony of the good news of Jesus, so that the world may see that we are clearly washed in the blood of the Lamb and sealed with the promises of God. But because it's through us that God wants to proclaim his message. It's through us consuming the world and then share, consuming the word and then sharing that with others. It's through us being washed in the blood of the Lamb and then sharing what it looks like to live a life um, that's sustained by the gospel that the world desperately needs. It's not, it's not the kingdoms, it's not the solutions that this world provides. It's, it's only the provision that we receive through, through the good news of Jesus. Uh, we're going to celebrate that right now through communion. We do this every week at Velocity. I'm going to pray before we do that. Um, but it sets the tone and the foundation for um, how this new kingdom of God is established. Uh, this is the way that uh, Jesus establishes his rule through self-sacrifice and love and grace and mercy um, to bring us to redemption and resurrection uh, so that ultimately, uh, regardless of what power the kingdoms of this world seem to hold over us, uh, God is going to make everything new in our lives. So let's celebrate that today uh, through communion after our prayer. God, we thank you for uh, these reminders from John that... Um, this is, again, this is not just about things. Yes, are there things that are going to happen in the future? Absolutely. But there are, th there are choices, there are decisions that, that we're making right now that impact uh, how we experience the future. And so, God, uh, we thank you for these reminders. We thank you for how consistent your message has been proclaimed through, throughout the centuries, through, throughout all of humanity. And God, help us to recognize the lies from the enemy. Help us to recognize that there's a, there's a, a message that is, that is false, that does not lead uh, where we might think it's going. Give us the courage and the wisdom to, uh, to recognize and respond to, uh, to your word. And God, we thank you for the gift that it is to sustain us in this life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.